So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Podcast. You know, understanding the intricacies of the global financial markets is difficult, if not almost impossible for the average person. It takes a lot of specialty training, education, and dedication to study these markets and understand how they work. And today we sit down with Nick Batia. He's a researcher with Tantra Labs. He's an adjunct professor at USC speaking and teaching about the bond market, the financial market. And he gives us some great insights. We get into some conversations talking about the history of money, how it works, different types of assets from currencies, treasuries, oil, gold, etc. Of course, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin. We talk about what he saw in the traditional financial markets, buying and selling treasuries, that kind of caused him to want to jump over into Bitcoin full time. We have a lot of good conversations about Bitcoin itself specifically, including how it's exactly where it needs to be today, how it's scaling, what the evolution of Bitcoin looks like today, and where it's going over the next five and 10 years. We both agree it's exactly where it needs to be. It's doing exactly what it needs to be doing, and it's on the course to set it up for huge success in the future. It was a great conversation with Nick that I really enjoyed. So let's go ahead and just jump right into it. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nick Batia. He, has a, he does research with Tantra Labs and Open Nodes. He's also an adjunct professor at USC talking about finance and bond markets and stuff. So many things that we could talk about. We'll try and keep it pointed. I'm excited for this interview. So uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, like I said, there's a lot of things we could talk about, but, but I want to keep it on track. Uh, but before we dive into all that, why don't you just kind of give us a background of, of kind of how you got here and what you're working on right now? Sure. So I joined the Bitcoin industry formally uh, just a few months ago as a research strategist for OpenNode, a payment processor uh, that's enabled by the Lightning Network, um, as well as Tantra Labs. It is a hedge fund. They're both here in Los Angeles. Um, they're both extremely exciting opportunities, um, and I'm really happy to be part of both of them. Uh, before that, I was part of the traditional finance industry. I was a bond trader trading U.S. treasuries and other interest rate products for an asset manager um, for a few years and uh, worked at a hedge fund before that for a couple years. Um, so I'm really just excited to have made the transition from the bond market to Bitcoin. Yeah. So, uh, what a, what a big jump to go from like traditional finance working with billions or trillions of dollars to go into like this small kind of brand new technology. Uh, what was that decision like to go from, you know, the big traditional market to something that's like risky and unproven and small? Sure. Well, it was a process that happened uh, over a few years. Uh, first started with my interest in Bitcoin and the dive down the all the Bitcoin rabbit holes. Um, and that you know process lasted a couple years. Then I started writing about Bitcoin last year. And uh, some of that work was embraced by the Bitcoin community. Uh, they encouraged me to write more and uh, wanted to have conversations about some of the things that I was interested in. And all that snowballed into 
meeting real Bitcoiners in person and starting to form relationships, uh, going to events. And, uh, and then the, the gravity of Bitcoin just kind of pulled me in. And in the end, um, I made the you know, decision that it was, it was time. I love that. The gravity of Bitcoin pulls you in. Man, it sucks us all in, doesn't it? So when you were working for like a traditional manager, institutional manager, um, and you were trading treasuries, like I said, I mean, those are, those are big markets, global markets. So you were looking at like the big kind of macro global picture when you were, when you're doing those things. And, um, what, what were you looking at? Um, were there certain things that you were seeing that, that were kind of pushing asset prices around that kind of caused alarm for you? Well, uh, you know, one of the th things as a treasury trader that you really sink your teeth in is this bull market that treasuries have been in for uh, three, three plus decades in the United States um, since the 80s when interest rates were at 15%. And so then you start to ask yourself, why have rates been trending lower for decades, even though they can pop higher for a couple years at a time? If you zoom out, uh, what you see is just this persistent demand for U.S. Treasuries. So I started to ask myself, what are the things that cause this persistent demand? And those were the things that I ended up focusing on. And, uh, you know, some of those things are just the unlimited demand for safety and liquidity um, of, of safe, relatively safe assets versus all the other risky assets out there. Let's let's unpack that just a little bit. So, um, what, for those that aren't aren't kind of tuned in, what are treasuries? Real quickly, I mean, uh, how how does that how does that work? Right. So, treasuries are obligations from the U.S. government. So they are uh, it's a it's a debt instrument, and the the buyer of the bond is lending money to the U.S. government. And over time, the U.S. government pays back that that lender with uh, interest payments and then eventually the principal at the end. The reason why treasuries are held as this quote-unquote risk-free asset, even though we know that the, the government could default, um, the, the fact of the matter is that they haven't. And that precedent, the U.S. government's uh, credit worthiness, has positioned treasury bonds as the quote-unquote risk-free asset of the entire financial system. Right. And so because of that, because the dollars, the reserve currency of the world and the United States has kind of been the, the underpinning of the financial system, that's why their bond or their treasury is the most risk-free asset. And, and they have the track record, I guess, as well of not defaulting. That's right. And, uh, and uh, part, of, part of that is that the dollar isn't backed by gold anymore. So, you know, the people that look for uh, the, an asset that is a safe haven away from the dollar um, they look to U.S. Treasuries because the dollar is not backed by anything, but the Treasury or the bond is backed by the government, the credit of the government. That's right. Well, but see, what, the, the thing is that the the dollar is backed by the Federal Reserve, right? Um, that's if you have a cash note. Those are Federal Reserve notes. Um, dollars that are in a bank are liabilities of that bank. They're dollar deposits, and so those dollar deposits aren't backed by anything but that bank. And that's really why people seek the safe haven of treasuries in the financial system. It's kind of the default thing that you own instead of bank deposits because you don't want to have to trust that bank. You'd rather trust the government. Right. And so we're talking like on the billion scale, the trillion scale. So like uh, other sovereigns, right? Other governments and things like that. 
Yes. Well, and you yeah. said over the last 30 years, we've had this massive demand growth for that, for those treasuries as interest rates have gone down. Um, is that, um, is that because other governments are kind of falling left and right and the U S just continues to get stronger and stronger? Well, it's a, a combination of several things. Um, inflation rates in general have been low in the Western world for a long time and um, growth expectations as well. Um, and so, you know, interest rates are kind of that combination of growth and inflation expectations of the future. And so as those two things have trended down, so have interest rates. Now, I mean, currently right now, we're seeing the it's kind of this race to the bottom where all these other governments are starting to try to devalue their currency to kind of play that game. And so that's only making the U.S. dollar stronger or the, the treasuries even stronger and more demand. Well, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because the U.S. dollar is the center of the financial system. And uh, for that reason... Um, as goes the U.S., goes the rest of the world. And so I actually like to think more in terms of the rest of the world uh, trying to devalue their currency is simply just a reaction to what's going on in the dollar system. Right. Okay. Now, you talked about, um, we talked about treasuries, but when you were looking at the macro markets, I mean, did you look at treasuries, which are, you know, credit essentially of the government, but uh, you'd kind of referenced before you were also looking at gold, and oil equities, how they all related together. Um, gold and oil obviously are commodities. Those are real world assets. That's, that's real wealth, right? Uh, versus treasuries just being credit. How do you see those moving together or, or what, what do you see there when you look at those together? Yeah, so the, you, the best thing you can try to do is um, just understand which ones to watch, trying to predict which causes the other to move or how they all react in you know in relation to each other is is really almost an impossible task and unless you um you know you have the quantitative tools which actually there are a, a few you know hedge funds uh out there that you know have dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars into the infrastructure to analyzing this data so um tracking it um being able to try to predict it is not something that I did. The only thing that I was trying to do is look at what was m moving and why it was moving uh, and, and try to understand, you know, some of the relationships between asset classes, equity, yeah. fixed income, currencies, and commodities. I guess I, what I was asking is, um, so I just recently did a video um, on YouTube where I talked about um, the Dow to gold ratio. And we, I was basically talking about, you know, which a lot of people are kind of in tune with, but like gold being real wealth or real value, it's priced in dollars and it looks like gold's getting more expensive. It looks like houses are getting more expensive. It looks like all these things are getting more expensive, but really the dollar is going down in value. And you, when you look at, um, when you look at home, the, the medium home price in the United States 50 years ago is 27,000. Today it's 275,000. Uh, but when you price it in gold, it's kind of priced the same amount of ounces per gold or whatever. So that's, I guess that's what I was curious about. So over the last, you know, since 1971 or whatever, as that money supply has been exploding, I would imagine we've probably seen similar things like in the treasury bond market. Um, yeah, the, uh, definitely the, the cost of living and especially the cost of things that have been subsidized by government programs um, like the mortgage market and uh, the student loan market and the healthcare market 
uh, these three things have massive government subsidies here in the United States. Um, and it, it just leads to higher and higher prices. Bubbles. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere they want to put money because it creates artificial demand, right? And so you create artificial demand and it, and it produces bubbles. Now, you wrote a paper recently called the Triumvirate, which was, uh, which was really cool. It was well-received in the community. I know it got a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, publicity and, and there was some really good stuff in there. And you talked about a little bit about the history of money, um, gold and then dollars built on top of gold. Um, but really there was a point where the Euro dollar was created that kind of changed the whole system um, before really we even lost the gold standard. Uh, what was that difference? Maybe real quickly as you walk through that. Sure. So um, wh what you, what basically happened was in Europe after World War II um, and the Bretton Woods system was started where the dollar was the reserve currency, banks in Europe needed a way to settle balances between each other. So they came up with this system of a dollar liability and uh, that wasn't connected to the Federal Reserve regulated onshore US dollar system. But what were they using before that? Just dollars? That's well. They were using the balances between them, between um, between the two banks, and okay. so those balances, whether they were denominated in the currency Europe or in gold, um, they they weren't able to facilitate the economic activity uh, that was required of them in dollars because they they just couldn't have the access to that many dollars. Okay. So, so they came up with their so own in, currency, the euro dollar, to help facilitate that trade. That's right. So they still had dollars, right? And those dollars um, were actual notes. And, but that only limits them to facilitate the amount of dollars that they have. So if they wanted to grow their business, they have to come up with something else. So they came up with this tool called the euro dollar to actually facilitate payment beyond the actual dollars that they had. Right. And so um, that was a big turning point, you think, in like the, the, the change in our money from gold to dollars to then kind of the system that we have today? Well, what happened was the, the supply of these euro dollars started to increase and then they started to mix in with regular onshore dollars. So the Federal Reserve admitted sometime by the 1980s that they had lost track of the money supply. Right. And they went from targeting money supply in their monetary policy to the price of money, which was, you know, the federal funds rate, right? They started targeting interest rates instead of the money supply because they actually didn't, they lost track of it completely. <laughs> and they, they, they've admitted this, uh, you know, slowly, but surely, you know, since the 1980s and, um, in some papers that I was reading in, in preparation for this article. Sure, they used to track it. They used to say like, because uh, it was backed by gold and they'd say like how many times more than gold and then they tracked it for quite a while and then they just gave up and said, ah, forget it, right? Um, but you made a point that, that uh, in the paper, you made a point that at that point, um, the dollars were no longer that risk-free trade. And that's kind of what started pushing everybody into the treasuries. So that that's was kind right. of a shift. That's right. So once the Fed you know, admits that they've kind of lost track of the supply of the dollar, um, the whole system realizes that the dollar is just a banking liability and not really uh, an asset that's worth holding on to for any long duration of time. And so that's what causes the demand for U.S. Treasuries because you can think, just think of it as the dollar substitute. 
And if the dollar is a banking liability, then you just substitute it with the government's liability. And that is basically what happens in the capital markets where um, cash doesn't actually sit in cash. It sits in treasuries, T-bills, et cetera, because that's yeah. the safe way to store dollars. It's interesting. You know, I saw just recently, I mean, the last couple of weeks, I think I saw a survey and it said something like 25%, maybe up to 30% of people still think the dollar is backed by gold. And really there was kind of this sly uh, switcheroo, bait and switch, whatever, where the dollar still looks the same right? They changed it at the top, the, some of the text a little bit, but for the most part, the dollar looks the same. And so the most people think it's still the same. Um, I, I thought what was interesting is that 25, 30% people thought it was still backed by gold. I wonder how many people never even knew it was even backed by gold though. That's probably yeah. a pretty high number. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. I, um, you know, I didn't start trying to understand what the dollar was um, until I started studying economics uh, in, in college. So, you know, I think that it's just not on most people's radar. The dollar is their store of value. It's their medium of exchange and it's their unit of account. The dollar works. Um, and, and so because of that, uh, people tend to not notice. But if you zoom out, like you were saying, and you look over a multi-decade time horizon, that's when you start, that's when you start to notice that maybe this isn't the best way to store value. Yeah, that's such a good point that you made. Just uh, like in the last week, another tweet that that kind of went around the world was uh, that uh, I think it was Larry Cernak posted or something and said that, uh, you know, the, the dollar by design is supposed to inflate by 2% annually. And even though it steals money from people or value from people, they're not supposed to be storing their wealth in, in, in dollars, right? And he said they should be buying treasuries. Um, but as the point you just made, which I agree with, the average person has no idea. They just think that they store their money in dollars, right? Yes. And um, that's why we also see that most of the stock market is owned by, um, you know, I think it's 10 or 15% of the American population. So, you know, most people don't own uh, financial assets in yeah. general. Yeah. What's interesting when you go through history, and again, Bitcoin drags you into all these different little rabbit holes, as we call them. But when you go through history, you can see how, um, you know, in the mid, I don't know, 14th, 15th century, the whole world got onto the standardized gold system where all the coins had the same size and weight, and how it just blew up free trade and allowed everyone to start specializing. And then the world had several hundred years of massive prosperity um, during that period. And, um, people were able to specialize, store their value and have it retain its purchasing power. But today, let's, even if you're the best uh, brain surgeon in the world, you should be able to be a good brain surgeon, park your money, have it store its value, but you can't. And so now everyone's forced to be an investor. And then it's created this whole financial system that would, wouldn't even be necessary if we could just store our value. That's right. That's what happens in, when you're in a credit-based or debt-based money system is that it has to gradually inflate to stay alive and uh, it causes yeah it causes everybody to have to be an investor what's interesting you now you, in the, in the you have this traditional finance background and it seems like a lot of people still because maybe the way that's predominantly taught is that we have to have this inflationary system 
which I think is the point that he was trying to make on that tweet, um, because we need this system to inflate. And I, I sent a follow-up tweet out and I said, would you rather your money buy more in the future or less in the future? And everybody, of course, wants more money or, or, or to buy more in the future. Um, but they want us to believe we need our money to inflate. Uh, but really it's the debt, right? Do you want to pay less in, uh, for your debt in the future or pay less or pay more for your debt, right? Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the things that I'm going to be spending a lot of time on uh, over the next several months is coming up with an answer to your question about um, how do we answer the criticism that we need to have this moderately, moderately inflationary system um, and that, you know, the deflationary system of Bitcoin is, is bad. So I'm, I'm going to be spending a lot of time researching, writing, trying to come up with ideas, asking some smart people. There, there have been great pieces written about um, Bitcoin specifically with this, um, but also in terms of the gold system that we used to have. Um, so I'm looking to research and summarize some of that stuff. I think, I mean, I think an inflationary currency only work, only helps, is only good in a credit-based system. Um, in a non-credit-based system, you want a deflationary currency. Of course. And, and they want to say, well, people want to feel like their true wages are going up. Um, but I don't know. I, I think even though, yeah, our wages went from $4 an hour to $8 an hour, we know that they buy less today. So I don't know. Yeah, that's not a great that. argument. <laughs> What's that? It's not a great argument to say that people you know, want to feel like the numbers are going up. So that's why we have an inflationary system. I right, don't buy no. it. No, it's not a good argument at all, you know. So it only helps the people with the credit. Now, you also made a point in that triumvirate uh, article that really the banks broke um, the dollar in 2007, and, and now we're in a system of permanent disrepair, you said. Yes. And so why is that? What happened there? Well, so the system of euro-dollar interbank liabilities um, was kind of a, a free-reign system, strike of the pen um, not with a lot of limits and not with really any worry, uh, what would go wrong. Um, and then when it did go wrong in 2007 and they realized that you can't just leverage up 60 to one and survive, um, that at that, from that point forward, the bank's trust of each other really just started to unwind. And so the reason why I say that we're in permanent disrepair is because we keep th going through these periods uh, where banks uh, just stop lending to each other and we can see that the system um, is not the same as it used to be. Now you say that in 2007, so that's at, at, right before the great financial crash happened, um, they, they realized they can't lever up 50, 60 to one. But did they really? Aren't they levered up that much today or worse? Well, sure. So the the way that the central bank backs the system um, makes the banks comfortable with taking risk. They just know that the their fellow banks are not the ones that are gonna that are gonna step in and keep the system alive. It's the central bank, and right. so the Fed came in in two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten and basically said we're going to provide all the liquidity that you'll ever need. And so, yeah, why would the banks go to each other anymore? Right. They wouldn't. When, and when doesn't, that, doesn't that almost make them more reckless, knowing that, hey, now we have this backstopping and we're always going to get bailed out? 
Well, actually, it's turned into something kind of scary where they are kind of reckless for most of the quarter. And then as we go into quarter end, they have to window dress, as we call it. Um, they just have to make their balance sheets look good for all the regulators. And they start paring down a bunch of risk with each other. And so really bad things can happen on quarter ends or year ends, as we saw last December, as we saw this September. Um, you, you, you have a system where you have kind of make-believe risk for 80 days of 80 out of every 90 days, and then you have to reconcile to reality. Uh, yeah. It's not a great system. You know, I like to say that, uh, like to, people like to say like knowledge is power. And I like to say that really only actionable knowledge is power. Otherwise, I think ignorance is bliss. And a lot of times like you've, uh, you peel, you peek behind the curtain, you see this stuff and then you can't unsee it. So I'm curious, um, you know, being that you were studying this in, in, in uh, you know, becoming a professor and working for these uh, institutional managers, did you, did you, and then you made this shift into this brand new financial system technology, which is kind of scary, but was it almost like what you were seeing going on was so bad that you knew that system is doomed and you might as well jump onto the lifeboat while you had a chance? Yeah, not, not doomed uh, necessarily, but um, beyond actionable repair, um, not something that I could try to go out and fix. So let's work on something that we can build and we can change and, um, you know, something, something exciting. And it, it was basically, yeah, kind of that black hole of, wow, this system is, it's maybe it's not doomed tomorrow or even in the next 10 years, but it's decaying and, uh, not something it's not that, fixable. Yeah. You know, I want to, you know, I want to have something that excites me, you know, yeah. over the long term. I like how you say that because <laughs> a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, we talk about it where it's an alternative system. So we can just opt out. And so we don't have to wait for one to crash before the other <laughs> takes off. And we can just kind of build this alternate system. And that's, I guess that's what you are trying now to push. Yeah, it's definitely a parallel system. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, I, it's hard to see um, the United States relinquishing control that it has um, in a short, in a short time horizon, yeah. uh, you know, with the, with the, with the tool that they have in the dollar. Um, so yeah, we have to build a, an, a parallel system and make it as good and then better as the dollar system before, you know, we can say, Hey, you should, you know, you should come over to, to the Bitcoin world. And that's just going to take time. Yeah. I know. I think I, I always like to say people are expecting way too much, way too soon. I did a video where I talked about how the dollar and actually, you know, the, the reserve currency has changed about every hundred years for the last five, 600 years. And I made, I, I just, I just really broke down the change from Britain, the sterling into the dollar and how really it was about a 30 to 40 year process. And today we're seeing the same thing happen, but it's going to happen over a 30 to 40 year process. It kind of happens with a whimper, not a bang, as I, as I said. Um, so kind of like what you're saying, we can start to build that alternate system. Now, we didn't get super deep into the, ex the existing system today, but in your uh, article, The Triumvirate, you talk about the, tri uh, the three pieces, I guess, right? That Bitcoin can kind of uh, build this alternative system. You want to break down what those three are for us? Yeah, so uh, what I'm basically referencing is that in the world of uncertainty, uh, people and investors want things that are safe and liquid. 
the reason that um, even things that are even things that are relatively safe can be extremely illiquid, and uh, it defeats the purpose of the safety in the first place. And sure, so no one's going to buy it, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so the combination of safety and liquidity is what people are going to seek. And so what I see is, and I reduced all government bonds to U.S. Treasuries because they're the dominant. But you could you could consider all um, global government bonds, you know, including those in Europe and Australia and Canada, uh, et cetera, you know, a lot of government bonds that have really, really strong track records. So these government bonds is one asset that people are going to and have flocked toward. Um, gold is another, as we see the long-term price of gold has um, been in steady appreciation, you know, give or take, uh, you know, the interim volatility that we saw during quantitative easing. And, um, and then Bitcoin, we all know what's happened to the Bitcoin price since 2009 when it did not have a price um, because it didn't, you know, it just started to exist. Uh, so these three things, uh, these three assets, these three asset classes, I believe will be in massive demand over the next um, couple decades. And so that's, as that's Bitcoin, tre treasuries, gold and um, uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin will start to take up more and more of that demand amongst those three assets. Uh, right now, Bitcoin um, is still uh, significantly less than 1% of the total market value of this triumvirate. Um, but in 2007, during that interim Bitcoin bubble, uh, Bitcoin was over 1% of you know, the market for treasuries gold and Bitcoin. So that's pretty incredible. And as we see that go from 1% to 5 to 10% over the next several years, um, that's, you know, that's what I want us, I want us Bitcoiners to monitor where we are in relation to these other two assets. Uh, it's, I'm curious because you talk about them as risk-free assets. And I understand you made the case like uh, treasuries or bonds are backed by the faith of the government. They've never failed. So it's pretty risk-free. They're going to pay you back. Maybe it won't be worth as much, but they're going to pay you back, right? Gold is is real wealth, real value. The central banks are stockpiling. That's risk-free. But how do you call Bitcoin a risk-free asset today? It's Yeah, it's more a colloquial way to describe it. Um, nothing is risk-free. Like you said, the treasuries can um, be worth zero if the U.S. government defaults. Uh, technically, or they keep inflating them away, right? Right, right. And then, um, you know, technically your gold isn't risk-free because... Um, you know, it could be faked or um, seized. Yeah, seized, exactly. Um, and your Bitcoin isn't risk-free because, um, you know, SHA-256 could break or, you know, something could happen to Bitcoin. So nothing in this world is risk-free. Sure. However, um, there is this echelon of safety and liquidity that gold has reached um, through thousands of years of track record and that treasuries have reached through um, 100 plus years of track record that US government has had different forms of obligations since its inception. Um, and Bitcoin has 11 years of track record. So um, let's, see the, let's see Bitcoin where it is with 20 years of track record uh, where, you know, versus where gold and treasuries are after hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah. Now, currently, it seems like the central banks are on a mass buying spree of gold. Uh, last year, they accumulated more gold than any time since 1971, since we got off the gold standard. 
Um, so the central banks are buying gold to hedge against their currencies, right? A collapse in currencies. Um, so you think at some point, maybe uh, as Bitcoin gets more trusted, the central banks are also buying because so, so central banks are buying treasuries, they're buying the bonds, they're buying the gold, two of those three you called, and then eventually they'll start to buy Bitcoin. Absolutely. Well, there's no, I wouldn't have joined Bitcoin if I didn't think that the answer to that was yes. So I can't tell you when it's going to happen. Sure. Um, I would, uh, if I were to make a prediction, I would say within a decade, but um, I think that it will happen. And so what we're doing is trying to build up this system to get to the point where they, you know, they're forced to buy Bitcoin because it's the best risk adjusted investment that they can make. Yeah. It, again, there's so many pieces with Bitcoin that just make it so interesting. And one is the game theory that's been built into it. <laughs> and, and having that fixed cap adds to that. It's kind of like that game of musical chairs. And it's interesting the position the U.S. is in because as you've made the case, the, the dollar is the reserve asset. The, you know, it's the, it's the risk-free trade, et cetera. And uh, it's also the weapon that the United States employs, right, with the being uh, sanctions and whatnot. And so really the U.S. is the country that has everything to lose. And so they're going to have to fight against Bitcoin the most. Whereas other countries, they don't care. They don't have a reserve asset. So they're going to be faster to adopt Bitcoin. Uh, do you see something like that kind of playing out that maybe changes the power structure? Uh, yeah, the, the U.S. does have a lot to lose um, for sure. But uh, a currency is a very powerful tool for a government. So um, I you know, I think that they all are thinking in terms of, um, you know, will we lose power if we lose the power of the currency? Um, yeah. So not just the U.S., but sure, as the reserve currency, the U.S. does might have the most to lose. But yeah. I, I mean, I really don't see the U.S. fighting Bitcoin. Um, I think that the I think Bitcoin as uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, uh, freedom to use software. Um, freedom to store your wealth in whatever you want. Uh, I think that, yeah, Bitcoin is kind of, does have a lot of American ideals. And I just don't see any real fight against um, the legality of Bitcoin here in the United States. I love your optimism and I hope you're right. It is American. It was created here in America, right? I mean, it is, it is American. It should be American. And, and like you said, it does align itself with the American ideals. Uh, but we also know that money is power, right? Rothschild told us, I care not who makes the nation's laws. Let me control the money. And so they can't give up the control of money. And so it's like this, like, uh, what are they going to do? So uh, we'll see how that plays out. But well, one of the things that we do see is banks themselves fighting by, you know, um, not allowing their customers to access Bitcoin services. Buying Bitcoin gets account shut down or uh, exchange, wires to exchanges are blocked. So the banks are going to fight. Um, that I, I definitely believe the banks are going to fight. Um, so, um, but the U.S. government, um, I hope not. And I, and I see some great trends. Uh, we see Trace Mayer and Caitlin Long doing absolutely awesome things in Wyoming. And uh, we do see the conversation about Bitcoin in D.C. progressing very nicely after the entire Libra uh, incident um, where, you know, Congress had to face the music and realize that this whole cryptocurrency thing is not going away. And I think that we heard 
uh, insightful comments from people in Congress about Bitcoin. So I'm optimistic. Yeah, great. We'll, we'll run with that. And I, I, the other thing that I like that you're talking about is uh, really you're talking about this long range perspective, which I think is the most important thing. And I think everything I, I, I commented already that people expect too much too soon. And so you're talking about like in the next decade and really in the, in the big picture, it's not that long. Um, but you know, you're talking about like this, this big picture and we can talk about like the, maybe the trajectory or, or the evolution of Bitcoin just in the last 10 years alone and um, I know something that you're working on, which is, you know, currently Bitcoin has was started as this, uh, you know, potentially per the white paper, it was just this, this cash, digital cash. But now it's moved to this uh, store of value narrative because it's slow, um, because it you know, takes time, it's expensive to, to, to transfer and whatnot. But just like the evolution of money, we're seeing Bitcoin evolve as well. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so uh, you know what you're what we're referencing here is the advent of the Lightning Network, and the Lightning Network has made Bitcoin um, go from just that store of value, slow-moving asset, to now that asset with a currency layer on top of it, and that currency layer is basically a standardized financial contract, um, you know, between Bitcoin users, and so. It allows Bitcoin to be used now at the speed of light um, between users. And I think it's an incredibly important evolution of Bitcoin um, uh, here you know, today. So to give that just a little bit of context, so gold was used as money for 5,000 years. To, to settle in gold is very slow and expensive and clunky. If I had to send you gold across the ocean, for example, it would take a long time and be expensive. And so the banks gave us paper certificates and those could be used easier. And so Bitcoin may be a little slow and clunky. I mean, an hour, <laughs> I mean, to be real, I mean, to transfer millions or billions of dollars in an hour is not that slow and clunky, but going to a layer two, similar to like gold certificates, we have lightning, which is now speeding that up. And so yeah. the evolution is kind of working just as it's intended to. Absolutely. Um, you know, you had gold and then you had gold certificates. Um, we have dollars and we have PayPal and Venmo. And so payments happen, uh, payment stacks are built in layers. And the way to think about Lightning Network, if you've never heard of it before, is it's an app. And to use the app, you just have to have real Bitcoin. And so um, once you have real Bitcoin and you use Lightning, um, Bitcoin becomes instant. Yeah. Now, in the beginning, when Lightning was first coming out, and maybe if people heard this, where you have to like open up a channel and you have to d deposit money into that channel, um, are services that are coming out now kind of taking away that need to do that? And now I can just download the app and just use Lightning directly? Uh, so we, uh, as a Lightning industry, are on a great path forward. Um, right now, there are a couple very easy to use wallets. And um, OpenNode is a very easy to use payment processor. Um, and so infrastructure is being built right now in the Lightning Network. Um, I would say that uh, we're still a little bit of time away from it being able to process um, all the transactions that go on in Bitcoin for sure. Uh, at OpenNode, we see most of our transactions are done on the Lightning Network but most of the value is done on the regular Bitcoin blockchain. So we still see most of the value moving the regular way, but the frequency of the transactions, it's happening on the Lightning Network. So it's 
a really great, um, it's a really great progression. So um, real quickly, um, using Lightning then, all those transactions are done off the main blockchain, which is why they happen fast. That's right. They, they, they don't settle to the main blockchain unless one of the two uh, parties uh, decides to do so. So you don't have the burden of every transaction that you make confirming to the blockchain. You can just keep editing or do new ones all the time. Um, and so as long as both parties don't have uh, the desire to close a channel, you don't have to use the blockchain. And not everything has to be censorship resistant and immutable. My, my Starbucks coffee doesn't have to be saved for all time being censorship resistant, right? Well, and, that, and, that's, and that's also the point here about the Lightning Network is that even though uh, you know, there's a lot of fear around opening channels and how do I do it and all that, um, wallets are abstracting that away. Open node is abstracting that away. We're going to try to make it just really seamless so that you don't have to think about those things. And some of that might require a custodial solution. Um, you know, we don't think that it's wise to keep any of your Bitcoin in the custody of an exchange or a third party unless it's interim money and you just have a plan to withdraw it or it's not that much money. So 20 bucks, 100 bucks, or for our merchants, um, you know, they're accepting Bitcoin and they're withdrawing their Bitcoin within a couple of days. And so, right. um, you know, it's just an infrastructure. Yeah. So yeah, I can already see how much it's progressed uh, just in the last year or so. And it's, and it's uh, definitely exciting. So um, definitely something to keep an eye on. And, and that's where you see the evolution going. And, and then that's why the banks are scared, right? So in my understanding, there's like three functions of a bank. One is to store your money which we don't need anymore if Bitcoin can do that. Two is to settle the transactions. And three would be the lending market. So um, Bitcoin kind of takes most of those functions away from them. Yeah, and uh, the lending of Bitcoin is something that uh, will be very important ecosystem to watch as Bitcoin matures. Uh, the use of Bitcoin as collateral in loans um, is part of that equation. So we look to see you know, things that are happening um, in the regulatory sphere that, you know, Bitcoin is being accepted as this um, safe collateral or a, a good collateral for loans. And so any legal precedent that establishes Bitcoin as collateral is going to be huge for entities being able to operate as Bitcoin banks. Yeah, got it. All right, we're running out of time here, but I just uh, curious to ask you, so do you think now with Lightning and making it really easy to send microtransactions for cheap and fast, I mean, do you, do you think that's really going to maybe be the piece to start to finally push this adoption? Or do you I, think people are still going to want to hold all their, uh, their Bitcoin? Well, I think it's the use cases are definitely, um, you know, multiple fold for Bitcoin, as we've talked about. Uh, the need to hodl Bitcoin and store wealth uh, away from fiat currencies or, go or government bonds even um, won't, won't, won't go away and it'll only continue to get stronger the need to use Bitcoin for freedom of speech transactions in sanctioned countries or things of that nature will not go away. It's, it's only going to grow. It's only going to grow. And so Lightning Network, um, it enables all these new business models, this concept of streaming money, um, microtransactions with a currency that we can rely on has never been uh, done before. And so I'm really excited to see how Lightning Network adds to Bitcoin but I can't say that it's going to be the only thing or the most exciting thing. It's just, it's just another piece of the puzzle. 
I love that perspective because, you know, I look back over the last, you know, five, six years or whatever, I've been involved in the space and I see how my thinking changes and evolves. Right. And, and uh, I started to think like maybe Bitcoin doesn't need this mass adoption. I mean, if it goes, if it takes over the treasury market, the gold market, uh, the offshore um, banking markets, I mean, those are hundreds of trillions of dollars already. Right. And you don't see anyone pushing Bitcoin or gold as like mass adoption. But then you talk about the, will we see censorship continue to grow? And of course we will. We just saw the other day, PayPal blocked uh, Pornhub, right? And, um, and we're going to only see that grow and grow. So um, yeah, maybe we, we need it on both sides. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like to think about, about it um, from every different user. Um, you know, not everybody's going to use Bitcoin the same way. And I don't think we need mass adoption. We just need adoption. One person at a time, one institution at a time, that figures out they need Bitcoin. That's how we get Bitcoin to grow. Awesome. We're going to end it right there. I love that. Um, Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. It was a great conversation. Um, you've been writing a lot of good stuff, like I said. So where could people find some of that stuff that you're writing and, and keep up with you? Right. So I'm on Twitter at time value of BTC. Um, that's where I link to all my stuff. So I'm writing for uh, OpenNode on their blog, um, Tantra Labs on their Medium page, um, as well, but I link to everything on my Twitter. Awesome. And we'll put it in the notes for everybody else. So, uh, Nick, thanks so much. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, if you like this episode of the market disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate review and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening. And I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors Podcast.